This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Wrapping Paper. Do you like having to do work for your presents while contributing to deforestation? Try Wrapping Paper today! Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and welcome to episode 29 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's Hottest Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. If you're listening on Christmas Day, thank you so much for tuning in. I figured there was a fair chance a lot of podcasts would take off for Christmas, but also remember that every Christmas Day is an exhilarating morning of opening presents and eating a big breakfast that's half dessert, followed by an afternoon and evening of flipping through Christmas movies you've seen 50 times, trying desperately to find some entertainment. So we've got a really fun podcast for you today. We are tackling the Christmas breakfast staple of maple syrup. The thing Rob Gronkowski thinks of when asked this at a press conference. With you and Brady, we've seen uh, in the end zone two weeks in a row. What makes that connection with you guys on that particular throw so special and so difficult for anybody to defend? Yeah, I mean, it's like a saying my mom used to say, uh, it must be maple syrup because... Uh, butter don't drizzle like that, uh, and so that's kind of that's kind of how it goes. I mean, um, a few things. One, connecting on an NFL pass and drizzling a condiment isn't the ironclad metaphor you think it is. Two, if you microwave butter for a minute and pour it slowly, it absolutely does drizzle like maple syrup. And three, I know this was part of a prank by Jimmy Fallon to hijack a bunch of NFL press conferences, and I have to say, Jimmy, why on earth would you pick Rob Gronkowski for this prank? Have you seen his press conferences before? Because he acts like a 12-year-old in all of them. Between impersonating Bill Belichick, singing It's a Small World After All, and responding to a question about what he was doing during his one-week suspension in 2017 by saying I was just chilling, Gronk saying it must be maple syrup because butter don't drizzle like that is really nothing out of the ordinary. If you want to pull a prank, Jimmy, have Rob Gronkowski actually act like a mature 31-year-old instead of retiring to wrestle in the WWE, then rejoining the NFL just so he can follow Tom Brady to Florida like a little puppy dog. But beyond describing Gronk's weird borderline stalkerish love affair with Tom Brady, maple syrup is a fantastic sweetener, baking ingredient, and condiment for pancakes, waffles, French toast, or any other breakfast that makes every mom say, oh, look at that. No, don't touch it. Let me take a picture. And every dad say, they should really call it dessert. You know, it's basically cake. And then two seconds later, demand a little taste and take a bite the size of the sun. And unfortunately, maple syrup is facing a lot of problems. Maple sugaring has been a New England tradition for hundreds of years, but researchers say climate change is affecting the industry. A lot of us would agree that our winter has been pretty mild this year, but the changing weather patterns is actually creating some concerns for many Wisconsin industries. Our Jamie Perez takes a look at how changing climate is creating an uncertain future for some of Wisconsin's most profitable industries, like maple syrup. It's a New England staple and a gift from Mother Nature. But rich, delicious maple syrup may be harder to produce in the future. It's true. Climate change is creating warmer winters, which is already affecting the maple syrup industry and threatens to disrupt it a lot more. So today, we'll break down why climate change is coming after maple syrup, some of the associated environmental and economic impacts of that, and what we need to do to ensure our favorite breakfasts stay intact. 
But first, where does maple syrup come from? Well, it comes from sap from trees. And while it can come from many trees, it typically comes from black maples, red maples, and most prominently sugar maples due to their higher sugar content. As much as I wish it were the case, maple syrup doesn't just pour out of a tree when you poke a hole in it. It's actually a bit more complicated. The time to collect sap is in the early spring, when the maple trees are still dormant, and when the temperature hits three or four degrees above freezing. The freeze and thaw cycle alters the pressure inside the tree and starts the sap flowing. The first step is to tap the trees. They drill a hole one centimeter in diameter, five centimeters deep. Then gently insert a spout made of metal or plastic. Sap is 97.5% water and only 2.5% sugar. So to transform the sap to syrup, they have to boil it down. It takes 40 liters of sap to make just one liter of syrup. Like Natty Light, sap is 97.5% water, making syrup quite the process to make. Indigenous tribes in North America were actually the original discoverers of maple sap, collecting sap in large buckets and using the unprocessed sap as toner and eyewash, and boiling it with hollow logs and hot stones to create syrup and sugar, since sugarcane, of course, is not native to the Northeast. When French and British colonists arrived, they learned how to tap trees from the Native Americans and began increasing yields by using large metal cauldrons to boil down the sap. Today, most producers actually use plastic tubing or even vacuum systems to suck sap out of trees instead of dripping it into buckets. But maple syrup can't be produced anytime, anywhere. Maple trees are deciduous, meaning they prepare for the weather swings of a warm summer and cold winter by storing extra water and sugar in the summer and shedding their leaves in the fall so they can go dormant in the winter and sort of hibernate, like a bear or a public school district in Florida when there's more than three snowflakes on the ground or the temperature dips below 65 degrees. That extra water in the tree contains lots of little carbon dioxide bubbles, and when winter temperatures freeze the water, it causes the bubbles to contract. But then at the end of winter, when the temperatures go back above freezing, the bubbles expand, forcing the water up into the branches of the tree. And as the water moves, it both brings some of the stored sugar with it and creates the necessary pressure inside the tree for it to be successfully tapped. When the tree is tapped with a spile, it creates an opening where some of that pressurized sugary water can escape. And that's why maple syrup season typically falls between February and April, depending on the location, because it's the cycle of below freezing nights followed by above freezing days, which causes those bubbles to contract and expand, forcing the sap up and down the tree. Wow, sounds like someone knows a little too much about how to get water to escape from an opening when tapping it. Since maple trees require such a specific climate to both grow and produce sap, maple syrup can really only be produced in a few areas in the world. That's why over 80% of the world's maple syrup is produced in Canada, almost all of it coming from Quebec. 10% is in the United States, with about half of that coming from Vermont. A few other countries, such as Japan and South Korea, produce some maple syrup as well, but because of those climate restrictions, maple syrup production locations are more limited than the number of people excited that the McRib is back. 
McDonald's, I know you're trying to make the McRib some sort of novelty, but I promise you, there is nothing novel about anything at your restaurant. People are happy to eat a crappy burger, but nobody goes out for lunch and thinks, you know what I want? Some cheap fast food ribs. If you want to make something barbecue, just make a barbecue burger or barbecue chicken sandwich and stop tarnishing the good rib name. And because of all that, as climate change worsens, maple syrup production becomes a lot, lot harder. The number of days that are suitable for maple syrup produ production are projected to decrease in the shift and shift in annual cycles. So the time that we're going to make maple syrup each year in the future is going to shift uh, towards an earlier time in the calendar year, and the number of days that were suitable for production is going to be reduced in the future. That was University of Vermont professor Tim Perkins, and he's right. With winters being warmer on average, those winter-spring transition days where the CO2 bubbles in the trees contract and expand are coming a lot earlier. According to UVM's Proctor Maple Research Center, the Vermont maple sugaring season starts on average 8.3 days earlier and ends 11.6 days earlier than it did 50 years ago. And according to Harvard forest ecologist Joshua Rapp, by 2100, it could be up to a month earlier. And as anyone trying to coordinate a time for a family Christmas Zoom knows, it's a real pain in the neck to change the time of a tradition. But it's not just timing. With more variable temperatures day to day, the sap collection season is expected to be in the neighborhood of 10% shorter than it used to be. And that's a big deal. A shorter season means less revenue for syrup farmers and less syrup for all of us to enjoy. And not only does that temperature variation shorten the season, but it can completely disrupt it. When there's a warm day and the tree thinks it's spring, followed by a freezing cold day, the tree has trouble adapting. All of that makes predicting how much syrup a given farm will produce even harder to predict than it was to predict that Nick Carter was the crocodile on The Masked Singer. Come on, Masked Singer. You can't share a story about how the contestant gave his first $100 check as a child performer to his father to try to win his approval when that's literally in Nick Carter's autobiography. If there is one thing you know about Backstreet Boys fans, it's that every time Nick Carter writes or says anything, they will remember it word for word until the end of time. And sadly, the climate impact on maple trees goes beyond just temperature. As we discussed in the Gypsy Moth episode, climate change allows invasive insect species to enter into new areas and cause harm to the native species. For maple trees, that's a major concern. They, they like to feed on maples, poplars, many of, the, uh, many of our softer hardwood trees, but they view maples about the way uh, human beings would view Hershey bars. They just love to eat maple trees. And that's bad? Really bad because it, it bores large holes, large tunnels into trees and weakens the trunks, it'll weaken limbs and branches, and essentially it will kill uh, an entire large tree. Okay. First, Hershey bars are the most boring chocolate bar on the face of the earth, and while they do taste good, I wouldn't say we love to eat them so much as we begrudgingly choose to when there's no other candy bars left and we just found out Superstore got cancelled. And second, did he say softer hardwood trees? You can't be soft and hard, that's an oxymoron. Are they hard trees that are supposed to be soft, or soft trees that are supposed to be hard? 
If the former, then respect. If the latter, then I'd suggest checking in with a pharmacist. There are several insect species that create stress for maple trees. The Asian longhorn beetle, which that clip was referencing, can weaken the tree, spread diseases like tar spot, and increase the risk of breakage, which can make some maples unsuitable for tapping. Non-native earthworms consume leaf litter, which is particularly harmful to sugar maples, which grow their roots in the top few inches of soil and require leaf litter to keep the soil from drying out so they can get water and survive. And both non-invasive caterpillars and invasive ones like the gypsy moth can defoliate a maple tree to the point where they run out of energy to regrow their leaves. With climate change, these threats are increasing. Invasive species that might not normally be able to thrive in a maple forest now can, which not only harms the maple trees, but leads many farmers to turn to pesticides, which can be used sparingly, but often aren't, leading to the excess running off into rivers and streams. And it's a tricky situation for farmers deciding how much to spray, since if their maple trees die from an insect invasion, they instantly lose their entire livelihood. Climate change also threatens maple trees through snow cover. The amount of snow on forest floors is already declining as winters warm, and over the 21st century, forests in the northeastern United States could have between a 49 and 95% reduction in snow cover, depending on the degree to which climate change is mitigated. And though it might seem like less snow cover would help the maple trees stay warmer and healthier in the winter, in reality, it's actually the opposite. If you have long enough periods of time when there's no snowpack, but you still get below freezing air temperatures, then the soils freeze to a much greater depth and for a much longer duration than they currently do. And since these systems are not adapted to such a soil frost dynamic, uh, we're sort of uncertain as to how they'll respond. It's true. Just because something is ice cold doesn't mean it can't provide warmth and comfort in difficult conditions, like a snowman or a manipulative ex who told you they still want to be friends. The only difference is that kicking that X to the curb is a really good thing, but kicking winter snowfall to the curb is a really bad thing. The snow on the forest floor acts like a blanket. It protects the tree roots, gives underground insects a safe home, and prevents the soil from freezing too deep, which is absolutely essential for the health of the maple trees. A global change biology study found that changes in winter climate reduce sugar maple root vitality by 37% and maple tree growth by up to 40%. For maple syrup, that's really bad. It is true that if plants get more stressed, this is not maples in particular, but plants in general from a plant ecology perspective, under more stressful conditions, trees are likely to make more seeds. More seeds mean less sugar, according to Elizabeth Crone, an ecologist at Tufts University who spent years researching sugar content in maple trees. They'll invest more of their resources in producing seeds that can go hopefully to somewhere else where the environmental conditions are better, and they'll use fewer of their resources for growing and surviving and defending themselves. Exactly. When trees face stress from invasive insects, lack of snow cover, or anything really, they behave exactly how humans do, ignore their therapists, and consume all their sugar. And since maple sap is already 97.5% water and has to be boiled down to create syrup, this decline in trees' sugar content as a result of climate change means that water percentage could go even higher. 
That means you need even more sap to produce the same amount of syrup, which is bad for syrup producers, syrup consumers, and even the climate. Syrup producers typically use oil or wood to power their evaporators, and more diluted sap would require more fuel to boil. So how do all these environmental threats to maple syrup play out economically? Well, to start, all of this uncertainty and variability from season to season means the price of maple syrup should be volatile. Modern nature every year is not generous. The price of maple syrup is very variable from one time to another one. So we have to make sure that the market is with a stable amount of maple syrup. Now the market is more stable and value of maple syrup is maybe 20 times more than the value of crude oil. He's right. Mother Nature is not generous. She's actually really manipulative. Oh, I'm going to create you and create food for you and create beautiful plants and animals and landscapes, but if you don't use it exactly how I want, and you so much as emit one carbon dioxide molecule, I will throw hurricanes and diseases and wildfires until I destroy every single human on the planet. Maple syrup, as is the case with other commodities we've discussed before, like vanilla in the vanilla episode and oil in the airplanes episode, among others, should be volatile. For a while, it was. Until 1966, when Quebec thought of a solution. The FPAQ maintains a strategic reserve of maple syrup known as the International Strategic Reserve. The reserve is spread across three locations and holds a total of 12,200 tons of maple syrup. The ISR is operated as a government-sanctioned cartel, meaning it's a cartel that's authorized by the Quebec government. It's used to regulate global prices and supply of maple syrup. Yes, you heard that right. Their solution for price volatility was to create a cartel of maple syrup in Canada. Honestly, maple syrup is the last thing I would have expected there to be a cartel for, with the obvious exceptions of squeaky dog toys, provolone cheese, and Russell Brand wigs. And if you're wondering if I mean wigs shaped like Russell Brand's haircut, or wigs made out of Russell Brand's actual hair, the answer is yes. The theory behind the cartel, officially known as the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, or FPAC, is this. All maple syrup farmers must join the FPAC. The FPAC imposes quotas on maple syrup production, and any syrup produced over that quota in a year goes into the International Strategic Reserve, or ISR. Then, in a bad weather year, the FPAC can sell some of the ISR inventory to make up for the low production. Since Quebec controls an overwhelming majority of the global maple syrup production, this essentially means Quebec chooses exactly how much maple syrup is in the global market, and thus what the price of maple syrup will be. That price hovers around $1,200 per barrel. With this system, the world never runs out of syrup and the price stays about the same. Fans of FPAC argue that it played out exactly like this. That not only are Quebec farmers seeing stable revenues, but every farmer in the world benefits from the stable price. That the alternative of a completely unregulated market would lead frustrated farmers to cut down their trees and sell the logs out of desperation instead of sticking with the more environmentally beneficial and economically valuable syrup production. And they're right about all of that. 
but as you can probably guess, like every Chopped episode where the contestant has never cooked one of the ingredients in the basket before, a literal cartel that controls an entire industry with an iron fist can't possibly work out perfectly. Producers suspected of selling syrup on the black market are monitored 24-7 by bodyguards that they're forced to pay for. They also must turn over documents at a moment's notice and are subject to random inspections. While this only applies to rule breakers, it was enough to anger many producers who launched a rebellion against the Federation that included lawsuits, cutting down trees, and even setting fire to Federation sugar shacks, which is where maple syrup is made, not where the man in the white van said that he'd take you. In all fairness to the guy in the white van, he was wearing face masks long before anyone else was. Thanks for teaching COVID safety, kidnappers. Now stop inviting the children you kidnapped to sugar shacks and start, I don't know, inviting them to broccoli shacks so they can develop some healthier eating habits. With this much regulation, a lot of farmers are frustrated. The FPAC collects a hefty tax on each barrel and doesn't actually pay farmers for their product until they sell it, even when it goes into the ISR, crushing farmers' incentive to produce more. Any attempts to sell syrup products independently can result in massive lawsuits and fines of hundreds of thousands of dollars, often leading farmers to feel strong-armed and attacked rather than supported. And in 2012, $13 million worth of maple syrup was stolen from the ISR, comprising 12.5% of the reserve, and leading to the largest police investigation in the history of Quebec, which is absolutely wild. I'm not sure whether to think this heist was massive, or that Canadians are just so incredibly polite that stealing syrup is the biggest crime that happens there. The culprits were eventually found and jailed, but since the syrup they stole is one, really expensive, and two, can't be tracked, it's actually a really smart crime. And some of these struggles are reflected in the numbers too. Even though climate change has made maple syrup production harder, technological improvements have outpaced that and allowed the maple syrup industry to grow in the United States and other Canadian provinces. But in Quebec, the industry is shrinking. And as climate change progresses, the American maple trees and the $140 million maple syrup industry that they enable face the brunt of the burden due to our slightly warmer climate, whereas Quebec can actually expand their industry further north, meaning a larger and larger share of the maple syrup industry could be controlled by the cartel. So where do we go from here? First off, since the United States faces the brunt of a lot of these issues, many advocate that Americans A, buy real maple syrup, and B, support the smaller local maple farmers so they don't fall behind. As the coordinator for the Massachusetts Maple Producers Association, Winton Pitkoff, explains. The best way to do that is to make the farms as financially sustainable as they can be, and that's you do that by encouraging more people to buy local maple syrup and to understand that it's, it's great on pancakes, and we encourage people to do that, but it's not just for pancakes. People use it to sweeten their coffee, people use it in marinades and dressings and in cooking and baking. And so the more people do that and support the farms, the better able the farms are uh, to, to adapt. Technological innovations like vacuums for tapping and reverse osmosis, where most of the water from the sap is squeezed out through a membrane prior to boiling, have largely been what's kept the industry steady in the face of today's climate crisis. And while these practices are commonplace now, they're also expensive. Reverse osmosis, for example, requires an investment of tens of thousands of dollars, which puts the small farms at a huge disadvantage. 
the U.S. Department of Agriculture actually has started to work on this by launching a $4 million competitive grant program last year to support the efforts of states, tribal governments, and research institutions to promote the domestic maple syrup industry. With the U.S. industry poised to be hit especially hard by climate change in the coming years, supports like this could go a long way. There's also a lot of preventative measures that can be taken, many of which we've discussed before. Mitigate climate change. Proactively seek out and manage invasive species in maple forests before they become a problem. Don't drive a snowplow through a maple forest. More sweeping environmental action, of course, has a host of benefits outside of maple syrup, as well as monetary and regulatory costs to be mindful of, but it's absolutely worth remembering maple syrup is one more reason to consider such policies and engaging maple farmers in those conversations. Unfortunately, while we can absolutely stop the bleeding a bit, maple trees will decline in the coming years due to climate change, which is why some have suggested expanding the syrup industry to other tree species, which has the added bonus of incorporating more regions around the world into the market. Take this couple in Alaska, who apparently had the best time of their entire lives tapping a birch tree in their yard. Stuff is already going down. Already going with that. It's gonna fill that jar a couple times a day. Oh my gosh. Let's go get more jars. That's amazing. Funny, let's go get more jars was the other thing the man in the white van said. What a coincidence. There's also plenty to be done on the economic side. Many suggest FPAC should be reformed to give more freedom to maple producers and slow the black market. But of course, these reforms must be accompanied with another method of preventing price volatility, depending on how major they are. For fans of heavier regulation, one might prefer keeping the FPAC intact and looking at reforms such as taking away quotas and regulating supply more through the strategic reserve, paying producers up front as opposed to after the syrup is sold, or scaling back the fines, inspections, and lawsuits that have been viewed by many as predatory. Volatile commodities can also be stabilized through market-based policies, as is done with many other agricultural products using methods such as insurance or futures contracts. Any of these reforms, of course, would require a lot of interprovincial, interstate, and international cooperation, since even though the unregulated regions outperform Quebec's growth, they only do so because the FPAC is keeping the price and supply steady. Maple-producing regions outside of Quebec are basically Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, super cool and shiny, but ultimately would never be successful without Dasher, Dancer, Prince, or Vixen, Connor, Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. Come on, you really thought Rudolph flew that sleigh on his own? I get that the fairy tale version of the story is great for kids dealing with bullying, but let's call a spade a spade. The other eight flew the sleigh as they always do, and Rudolph was just a glorified flashlight. Even though maple syrup does take some energy to boil and transport and has some pesticide issues, the industry is generally considered to be a net environmental good. Maple forests absorb carbon from the atmosphere and are home to many important birds and other species. So to have a massively profitable industry contingent on the health and survival of those forests is about the best scenario one could ask for. And therefore, it's absolutely essential that we stay aware of the threats to maple trees and find ways to mitigate them and adapt in the meantime. Because if we do, we'll have healthier maple trees, a stronger economy, and ensure that maple syrup continues to exist for many years to come. So that if we took a time machine a hundred years into the future and asked someone what the best pancake topping is, they'd respond, It must be maple syrup because uh, butter don't drizzle like that.
Do you wish every time someone gave you a present, you knew the approximate shape and weight of the present, but you didn't know what it was for about three seconds so you could be surprised? If so, wrapping paper is for you. With wrapping paper, not only do you have to cut down trees to make it and rip it absolutely perfectly to be able to recycle it, but you get to create a whole bunch more work for the person giving the present and the person receiving it. What a bargain. Wrapping paper. Making sure Christmas breakfast doesn't start until 2 p.m. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Pamela Templer, a professor of biology at Boston University. Dr. Templer, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you conducted a study in the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire where you and your team actually went, you shoveled snow out of part of the forest to see how the lack of snow cover affected tree growth. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that study and what the findings were. Sure. Um, we know that winter climate is changing across the globe and that these changes are expected to continue. And so before we set up this study, we were really interested in understanding how changes in winter climate would affect the functioning of forest ecosystems. Most of the attention is often in summer times. We hear about record hot days, extreme heat days, which are really important because that can hurt people around the globe. But what we also know is that winters are warming faster than summer and that they're affecting a large part of the globe, especially areas that have historically had snow on the ground. And so, for example, here in the northeastern United States, um, air temperatures in winter have warmed something like two and a half degrees Fahrenheit since 1955. There's 20 fewer days when snow covers the ground and the amount of snow that covers the ground is much smaller. And so we were interested in finding out with the smaller snowpack, how does that affect our forests? So the trees, the microbes, the animals that all live in these ecosystems. So we set up this experiment. Um, it was both at Hubbard Brook, which is in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, as well as Harvard Forest, which is in central Massachusetts. And we basically mimicked what's already happening um, and what's gonna continue to happen over the next century. So at the beginning of winter, we basically went in, um, we had a bunch of plots that we call our control plots where we don't do anything, we leave them alone. Um, and then we have treatment plots where we would remove snow for about the first four or five weeks of winter. And the idea was we wanted to mimic a longer growing season and kind of delay when snow would fall on the ground. And we know that snow acts as an insulator. Probably everyone listening has seen growing up um, igloos and other forms of houses that indigenous people have been using for thousands of years around the globe. And they use them because um, snow that's really thick, like about eight inches thick, um, is really good at insulating the air, or in this case in forests, the soils beneath them. So we took away snow and then we saw, we basically looked at what the responses were in the forest. And what were the findings? Well, we found in this study a bunch of surprises. So some things that weren't surprising and some things that really surprised us. So what was not surprising was that when we took away the snow, we watched in real time as the soils began to freeze, which is kind of counterintuitive. It means that in a warmer world, as long as air temperatures are below freezing, the soils, if they're not covered by snow, are actually gonna get colder. So we found a whole bunch of responses. We found one of the surprises was that we found a documented reduction in both the abundance and the diversity of soil arthropods. So that just is a fancy word for soil insects, um, like spiders and other organisms. 
we found really high amounts of damage to the roots of the trees because just like the arthropods and microbes, the roots are not used to being frozen. So when they are, it actually damages them. And then we documented that in the following growing season, so the next summer, that damage to the roots led to reductions in both nitrogen uptake by the trees, which is important because that's an essential element for them, as well as large reductions in carbon uptake or photosynthesis by the trees, including sugar maples, which we believe results in a large drop in carbon sequestration of our forest ecosystems. So unfortunately, if we focus on winter climate alone, it looks like we could see some negative effects into the future. I've read that as the climate changes, maple trees and as a result, the maple syrup industry have been moving north. And given that climate change isn't going away anytime soon, it seems like that's going to be a continuing trend. But I've also seen folks, including yourself, who have suggested that over the long term, we could lose maple syrup entirely. Obviously, that's a scary situation. But I'm wondering, why is there such a danger of losing the conditions for maple trees and maple syrup entirely? Wouldn't it be possible to just plant the trees further north, or is that not a possibility? Oh, certainly. So I think if you look at the globe as a whole, I think it's going to be quite a while before we completely lose the conditions that allow sugar maples to make our delicious maple syrup. The way that maple syrup is made is that the trees really require below freezing nights followed by above freezing days. It's this oscillation that causes the sugars in the tree to move around so that when you and I put a bucket um, connected to a tap on the bowl of the tree, the sap pours out. Um, and so the concern is that eventually in any given area, as I said before, as winter temperatures increase, and so we could lose the whole maple sugaring season. There's documentation by others that the maple syrup um, season is getting earlier and earlier. So here in New England, where sugar maple is such an iconic species, um, maple syrup production is happening earlier. It used to be March, April. Now, sometimes it's not unheard of to be in January, February. So the concern is that eventually we just won't have the right conditions for the sap that we then boil down to make the syrup. So you're absolutely right. It, at least in the short term, we could plant trees north. <laughs> and Canada sure, certainly is a major producer of maple syrup. But I think a larger concern is what's happening to the health of our sugar maples and eventually will we lose them. That makes a lot of sense. And I know the sugar maple is often seen as the best tree for producing syrup, but there are a lot of other trees that can do it too. I just did a quick Google yesterday and it was like 29 mm -hmm. trees that can produce syrup. Um, so mm -hmm. are all of those species ones that demand snow cover and need to grow in colder or temperate regions? Or is it possible that there are trees that could produce syrup that are more resilient to climate change given that the maple is struggling so much? Yeah, good question. So the reason they're called sugar maple is because of how sweet they are. So certainly red maple, which appears to be a little bit less sensitive to the reductions in snowpack can make a syrup. The problem is that their sugar content in their sap is only about 50% that of sugar maple. So it requires twice as much sap to boil down to make the same amount of syrup. So yes, certainly you can do it. It just increases the cost and the work involved um, in getting the same sweetness in your final product. Certainly people are being really creative. You hear about people using red maples, birches, um, and then it just comes down to personal preferences because they taste slightly different because of all the other chemical constituents in their sap. But yes, certainly if you're mostly focused on maple syrup, there are other species that you can tap and people are doing that. 
And like you said, forests are part of a larger ecosystem, and we've talked about the direct impacts on the trees and on the syrup, but I'm sure these degradations to tree health impact the rest of the ecosystem too. And I'm wondering, since you are a forest ecologist, could you give us a sense of the ways in which this issue of tree health ripples out and affects other species or other natural processes in the forest ecosystems? Sure, I'll give you a little bit of a fun story. I found this fun. So we once did an experiment, um, it's now over and published, where we planted 140 saplings. So half were red maple, half were sugar maple, because we wanted to do a bit more of a mechanistic study where we could really fine tune the experimental treatments we were doing. So we had varying amounts of snow reduction in winter and varying amounts of the number of freeze thaw cycles we were inducing in winter. And we also warmed up the saplings in summer to see how warmer summer temperatures are affecting these plants. One year, a student came to my office so upset because she thought that we were somehow disturbing the saplings as we shoveled snow, and maybe we were nicking the saplings themselves by hitting them with our shovels, which we had never done before, but maybe we started doing that. We were so, so worried about this. But with further investigation, what we found, and this was so amazing, was this very clear story that emerged that when you leave the snowpack alone, and so in those winters where we get sufficient snowpack, the small mammals um, that live in this area of New England basically do fine. They live underneath the snowpack, they're protected from predators, they do great, and they end up eating some of the, the sapwood of the saplings on the ground. That's in contrast to those where we shoveled the snow um, and we found root damage of the plants. Those did not see above ground damage by the mammals because they were smart and said, oh no, I'm not being covered up by snow. I'm not being protected from predators. I better not go eat that sapling because then I'm putting my, myself at risk of exposure. So it was this really neat interaction where we found with snow, the plants are more susceptible to herbivory by small mammals. Without snow, the mammals go away because they're not protected by the snow, um, but then we see root damage caused by the soil freezing. Um, and so that was an issue of really interesting that we did not, we weren't setting out to see that interaction, but it was interesting to see this cascade of effects with a smaller snowpack creating trade-offs between root damage, so physiologically to the trees, um, versus small mammal herbivory damage to the, the plants themselves. And I know your lab also works really closely with city governments, and I wanted to ask, what advice do you have to cities and states in New England to preserve the maple syrup industry, which is an economic driver empl employing a lot of people and a great condiment, and preserve the New England forests, which obviously provide a lot of other benefits besides just maple syrup? I would recommend first and foremost that local governments work with people. So in addition to maple syrup, um, people love to look at the fall colors um, in autumn. That brings in a huge amount of money to New England each fall in a normal year um, because people, tourists come into the area to do some leaf peeping, so to looking at the beautiful colors. We have a big um, snowmobiling and skiing um, industry here in New England, and the forests provide a great backdrop um, to those winter activities. There's also ice climbing, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, so many other activities. Um, there's also timber harvesting, which can actually be done sustainably. So my suggestion would be that local governments work with their people, their citizens, as partners, not antagonists. I think most people recognize that we do better when we work collaboratively. So trying to create financial incentives to keep trees alive and healthy and well and not cut down. I think if people are faced with the implications or the consequences of cutting down forests, 
um, and they aren't given a choice. That's quite different than saying, why don't we preserve those trees, but you know, I'm gonna help you with your retirement in this other way, or providing jobs in different ways that don't necessarily require cutting down a lot of trees. Dr. Templer, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. This wraps up episode 29 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Olivia Amate, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.